Hey friends, it's Corey Andrew Powell here, letting you know it's time to treat yourself with an exclusive Motivational Mondays deal at the NSLS shop. Listeners get 20% off shop-wide with the code MONDAYS. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Need a new coffee tumbler? Or perhaps you want to keep it classy with a new hardcover notebook? Well, get them on sale. Listen, with this deal, I'm tempted to trade in my bow tie collection for one of those cute NSLS hoodies. And don't forget, use code MONDAYS at checkout. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Enjoy that 20% off at shop.nsls.org. And stay motivated, leaders. Stay motivated. Hello, everyone. I am Corey Andrew Powell, and joining me today is Tom Derry, the co-founder and COO of Rising Tide Car Wash. It's an organization that employs over 90 individuals with autism in a successful car wash business. And he's also the author of the new book, The Power of Potential, How a Non-Traditional Workforce Can Lead You to Run Your Business Better. Tom, welcome to Motivational Mondays. Thanks, Corey. It's a pleasure to be here today. Well, we are happy to have you here today. And, you know, first to begin with, you have been featured as a Forbes 30 under 30 social entrepreneur, and you speak a lot at Fortune 500 companies. And now your new book, of course, is making a buzz in the business world. So I'd love to know what is the mission of your new book, The Power of Potential? Yeah. So, you know, my family started Rising Tide with the goal of employing people with autism and, and trying to get as many people with autism jobs as we as we possibly could, because my, my brother Andrew has autism. And, you know, we saw from a really early age that in order for him to lead the full adult life that we knew he was capable of, we were going to have to step up and take action. We've been doing this now for about a decade, and we've learned somewhere along the way that most of what we do, if not all of what we do, to effectively support our employees with autism aren't really solving autism problems. They're really solving business problems because our employees with autism have the same needs as anybody else. Just in some cases, they're a little bit more apparent. So it allows us to do a better job of designing systems and processes that are more inclusive and work better for everyone who would use them. And we really wanted to share those learnings, uh, things around hiring, around structuring the workplace, around making things clear, around developing people, around working with people who are struggling, and really get those messages out to small, medium-sized business leaders because we felt it would really help those organizations better attract talent, better differentiate their brands, as well as hopefully provide a lot more jobs for people with autism. Mm. I think what's great about that from a leadership standpoint is the idea of it began with a a personal matter, your family. And now it's a it's a movement almost to facilitate helping a demographic of society that is often, I guess, maybe ostracized, just not thought of as a viable person in the workforce. So when it comes to the persuasion that you've had to implement, if you will, to organizations and businesses to get them on board? I mean, has that been difficult or was it something that they were waiting to do and they were like, oh, we've been waiting for a program like this? Yeah. I mean, there's there's some companies that, I mean, certainly there are other organizations than just us that are are taking up the lead on employing people with autism. There's large companies like Microsoft and SAP and other purposefully built organizations like us, uh, like Ultranauts and Biddy and Bo's Coffee Shops and John's crazy socks. There's, there's a lot of, of, of other folks, but what we find a lot when we talk to business leaders is that they're hungry for talent, right? A lot of these organizations really struggle to find 
great employees, especially at the entry level roles. And they, they likely, and most of the time, have never really thought about employing individuals with autism. And the first types of things that we hear when that starts to noodle around for them is, well, what if we fail? What if we, you know, try to employ, you know, someone with autism and we have to fire them? Like, mm. because that's really scary, right? That's like one of like the, I think the last things that people want to do in general, right? In, ge- let in general, mm. let alone somebody who like, you know, like maybe this is their, their only or, or one of very few job opportunities that they have out there. Mm. So uh, I think a lot of it is kind of being able to break down that stigma and offer a way to, do it where it's not just like a uh, charity focus where it's like, I'm doing this as a good thing because it's really a better business strategy. So, I mean, I think what we try to tell employers is the first thing is one really try to design a hiring process that's objective. So we have like real concrete measures around what is, what somebody needs to be successful in a role. So for our entry level car wash roles, somebody has to be able to do our, our interior cleaning process three times in a row under seven minutes in order to get a job. If they can do that, we have pretty high confidence that they're going to be able to be successful in that job. And that allows us to, uh, you know, evaluate people who, you know, on the surface might not interview particularly well. They may not look you in the eye. They may not have great verbal communication skills. They may have some stims uh, or or, or whatnot that makes them look different. But you put them into this same kind of, fair and standardized evaluation process. And a lot of times someone who may not be able to communicate with you much at all will really surprise you. We just Mm -hmm. actually recently hired um, a young man who is both deaf and autistic. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were really like, how is this going to work? You know, ourselves, like, well, can, can he, is he going to be able to do this? But we put him through the same process and he's great. <laughs> you know, he's able to, you know, read lips well enough and understand like whatever gestures our, our managers do. I, one of our managers can sign a bit, but for the most part, you know, not, not really able to sign. But because we have like uh, lots of visual supports in the workplace, color coding, we're able to teach things in a, a few different ways. He's doing a fantastic job. And this is someone who I think on the surface you would have never thought you know, could keep up on a day where we might want wash a thousand cars and, and this guy is killing it. So, you know, it starts, I think, with objective hiring and then being able to have a training procedures that are going to really easily quantify if someone can be cap- capable of doing a role. And then I think there's a lot, a lot of the risk uh, there that people fear, fear is mitigated. Mm. You know, when you talk about so many of those things you just mentioned, um, it makes me think of how, and I'm trying to avoid being political, but how in certain circles, uh, there's a, a push to remove diversity and inclusion training, mm-hmm. um, from jobs. And when you were speaking just then, it reminded me of, I think people get so hung up on where they, they hear the diversity and inclusion. They think of ethnicity and race. They think of mm. skin color. And there's a whole other component to that of people who have disabilities, verbal, maybe non-visible, you know, people sometimes with autism, they don't even look like they have a, a condition. And it made me think of, you just said part of how that success happens is the companies are committed to learning how 
to yeah. deal with that demographic. So it does concern me when I hear people going, we're going to get rid of DNI. Well, you know, that's not just about skin. Right. And we're making it a politicized issue when the truth is, is when you, in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, but the, the, one of the most effective ways to be an inclusive organization is to try to build the way that you operate and the way that your culture operates to work for anybody that, 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 you know, could, you could invite into the organization that it's not necessarily about any specific group, mm. but that we're, we're being really intentional about the way that we build our organizations so we can access you know, lots of different talent pools. And then, you know, for us, I mean, I think, and a lot of the organizations that have kind of tried to take this approach with people with autism, but then really designing around them have found that it ends up making your organization more diverse by any measure and pretty much organically mm -hmm, because right. all of a sudden you're just, you know, you're being objective. And obviously people from all different walks of life can do lots of different roles, especially an entry-level type role where you're going to do a lot of training within the organization anyway. So you're really hiring more for value set and than, than you are for skill set. And that to me is what really good inclusion tends to look like. It's It, it, it often looks like just better business and, and then it kind of moves organically from there. Yeah. Yeah. Because you don't really want organizations just to do it as a box being checked because then exactly. they're not really thoroughly committed to the actual uh, mm -hmm. well-being of the employee or their own bottom line, which is what, you know, at the end of the day is what matters, their profits, right? So, right. Um, and what I also love about what you're doing too, is you do focus on, so first of all, let me just go back a little bit. So I have a, um, a beautiful little cousin and um, she is autistic and she's probably about 10 years old now or close to 10. She's not nonverbal, but she, I mean, so she speaks, but she just hasn't spoken like fully, uh, you know, uh, and since she was born, but she can yell if you take the TV away, you know, she can <laughs> definitely let you know she wants the remote <laughs> control, you know, she can yell Nana too if she's, if she's pissed off. But, um, but you know, it makes me realize though, that the families of autistic children, this is what I loved about your story. No one talks about the fact that parents are already worried about what happens to my child, my child, if or when I'm not here or when they grow up or whatever those things are, I'm not going to be there for them. I would imagine that is so compounded mm. because it's just for me as a cousin, I can only imagine what my cousin's mother and grandmother are going through in her condition because, you know, they're like, well, we take care of her really well now. What happens when we're not here? So I love that you're sort of, it's not solving the entire puzzle, but there is that component of building a place in society for a livelihood for an autistic person. And that is really admirable. And I just want to commend you on that from a family that knows that concern. Thank you. Yeah. I, I mean, and that is the root of the impetus that caused us to start this organization. It was my dad really struggling with that from the time I think Andrew was probably like 12 or 13 years old. Being like, I, you know, can't even look at him like a young child right now. I look at him like he's a 40 year old man. And, and what is he going to, to do when, when he's done with what, the school system? Mm. And yeah, that was, that was our, you know, spark for action. I think that's been the spark for action for a lot of families who have either started companies like ours or started autism employment uh, programs within existing organizations. And I think, you know, 
obviously it comes from a place of need and, and there's a lot of stress and anxiety associated with that. But it also becomes a really wonderful inspiration for action. And I think why there's been some really cool initiatives that have, have been started so far. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And I know you, I, well, I watched a few of your, your talks and videos and I saw the one, the Ted talk with your father and it was pretty amazing just to hear that story because I realized how many, well, you consider how many autistic people are born, how many families are going through this. And I, and I did catch that really early part of the conversation where it was, we did this because, you know, we were, it was almost like the elephant in the room. Mm. No one's talking about like, well, what happens when he gets older? And I know for you as a sibling of a child who was autistic, what was that like for you growing up? You know, before you had this resolve that you guys are working on now, just as a kid, hey, my brother's different. How did you process that growing up? Yeah. Oh, I mean, so on the surface, I process, processed it by, you know, okay, I'm not going to have the same type of relationship with my brother that, you know, I, I normally would with a brother that's 20 months apart. We never really fought, but we also didn't have the type of closeness uh, that that you would expect there, right? We never, we didn't play sports together. We didn't go to parties together. We didn't talk about girls together. We just didn't do a lot of the like kind of typical brother things. Internally, it, and this is something that I think a, a lot of siblings feel is there was a, an underlying pressure to be a good kid <laughs> because, you know, you can see your parents are really struggling. Oh yeah. Yeah. Already with another sibling. Exactly. So it's like, right. well, I'm not going to cause any trouble. Right. And, right. you know, I, I think in a lot of ways that made me a good person, uh, but it also made it hard for me to advocate for myself as I, as I got older. Uh, that was something I had to I had to work through learning to be able to say, okay, well, I, I need help now. Oh, wait, can I just interject right there? So, because uh, I love that. So basically, you're, it wasn't just about I'm going to be a good kid. You were almost trying to just not even... I don't want to say not even need them because you knew their, their time was depleted, but you almost wanted to sort of like not even be of any sort of burden or just kind of want to be there in a way yeah, without yeah. any flux. Right. Exactly. And being able to take on almost like a, a parent sibling role with, with Andrew, where I was, you know, looking after him from the time I was a young kid. And again, like, you know, just like everything else in life, there's, pros and cons to, to the challenges that we face, like that was different and that was, was challenging at time. But I will say for myself, I think it helped me make, make me a better leader. And I also mm -hmm. watch, we actually have um, a young lady who's a manager at, at our, one of our stores now who also has a sibling. And it's just remarkable to see how mature of a leader she is at just 21 years old. Mm. And I think a lot of that has to do with her relationship with her brother. Uh, not only does it make her uniquely well-suited to work with us because all of our staff are, are artistic or 80% are, uh, but it also, I think, just generally makes her an incredible leader. So, mm -hmm. you know, we turn, we turn uh, lemons into lemonade sometimes. Yeah, definitely. And I think also people don't realize, well, I guess many do now because we have, we, we know better, but some people still don't realize that there is a scale of autism as well. There's a spectrum, if you will. And um, the reality is there are some people who have, they're on the more severe level of that scale mm. and they, they probably cannot mm. function, you know, in what we would consider to be like a, a traditional work environment. Mm. 
I'm not sure what your data suggests or if you study that. Do you know like if there's a majority of people who are autistic who are employable versus the ones who are more on the severe scale? Or is that a, something you know about? Yeah. So um, only about 16% of the autism spectrum has a significant intellectual disability. So 84% of the autism spectrum either has normal, above average, or maybe slightly below average IQ. So my you know, thesis is essentially that everybody in that group is certainly employable or vast majority. And I think in some settings, some of the um, more significantly impacted individuals are, are also employable. I think that is where entrepreneurship is really important, right? So we built Rising Tide around the needs of my brother, Andrew, who's in that like mild intellectual disability category. He, um, so this organization is kind of built around him as the prototype mm. and, and has expanded from there. But I think if, you know, if, if you're listening to this, you have a, a child or a loved one who has a significant intellectual disability and it would be really hard for them to like, you can't picture them working at a car wash. That's an opportunity to potentially innovate a different solution. Mm. There's um, a group called blue star recycling in Fort Collins, Colorado, I believe, uh, don't quote me on that. Definitely in Colorado. <laughs> um, <laughs> and they uh, they employ um, a lot more non-speaking individuals and a lot more uh, significantly impacted individuals because that was that was the prototype that, that they started off of. And that's also been a successful organization. So we need a lot of different opportunities for us to really effectively provide good and, and varied job opportunities for, for everyone on the autism spectrum. And some of that will come from, you know, existing companies saying I need a new talent pool. Some of that will come from from families that are directly affected that are designing around usually one or two particular people. Mm -hmm. And then with that demographic as well, I read where you said there's like 90% of people with autism are unemployed. Mm. Yeah. I mean, the data there is like, very shaky as far as the exact numbers. Mm -hmm. uh, they're generally but around there. Yeah, exactly. They're they're small sample sizes. These studies, but but somewhere around there, it's significantly, dramatically more than the average unemployment in a in a given area. It's significantly more than other disabilities, and really, a lot of that has to do with the fact that the way that we tend to interview talent is a social test, right? right? When we do an unstructured interview, it's essentially we look at each other, we talk to each other, I decide if I like you with no real data associated with it. So it's essentially a social skills test. And that is right, cutting right to the root of where a lot of people with autism struggle in their ability to interact with neurotypicals in the same way that other neurotypicals interact. Mm. So you know, while someone could have an incredible IQ and be brilliant and be super qualified for a role, they may present themselves as really unconfident, you know, not looking you in the eye, giving you a really weak handshake, downplaying their skills in an interview, and you pass on them mm. for when they would have otherwise been great. So I think a lot of it is this, the reason for that is the systemic way that we, we tend to evaluate talent. Mm. Uh, again, love that because very often on this show, we talk about people who have 
achieve success through nonlinear paths mm-hmm. and they're non-traditional applicants. And this is just, you know, in the, the regular world, people who are not autistic. And we are seeing more and more that businesses are benefiting from not just following, okay, well, there's this timeline on a resume. There's something missing. There's a, there's a gap. We can't hire them. The boys, well, mm. find out what that gap was because maybe they were out being a longshore fisherman and they didn't put that <laughs> in the application. But that kind of stre- strength and stamina and fearlessness might benefit you in this job. And so I think in general, I like to believe companies are, are doing that more and hopefully this is just another wave of that. And um, it also reminds me of when we've done this for senior citizens, for example. You know, I know there's, I, when I grew up, there's like a local McDonald's that created a position of like um, a senior who would come in and she'd wipe the trays down all day. So they were faster than the dishwasher cycle. And her name was Jean and she became like a favorite of, the, of McDonald's. We'd come in, hey, Jean, hey, Corey. You know, she was like 85, almost 90 years old. But, you know, we didn't want, I guess they didn't want just to have seniors in the society not having an opportunity. They're not retired, but they need the social connection still. So why not figure out a way to make that happen? This is very similar, but on a more clinical scale. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think like, you know, when we tend to hire based off, off resumes, we don't take into account the fact that a lot of times the context of previous experience it doesn't directly correlate with your role. Even if you're like, let's say you're hiring a manager from another company that's in the same industry as yours, that doesn't necessarily translate, right? It doesn't necessarily translate any better than someone who has a very varied background that doesn't have any direct experience, but may still have like the strong communication skills and values that you're looking for in this role and problem solving skills, but they came from a totally different place, which is why I think it's so important to really try to design something that's objective, whether it be uh, a work test or an evaluation or a structured interview where we ask the same questions and score them the same way for everyone who goes through it. I think that allows you to kind of at least start to cut through the bias. Like we're, we're naturally biased creatures, right? So, you know, you can't necessarily eliminate all of it, but you can manage it a lot more effectively. And I think, you know, when I talk to people who are saying like, I just can't find anyone to do this job. I think 99% of the time that's because the hiring process is flawed and that would be the way to fix it. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that a lot too, when it comes to, well, not to bring this up again, but the diversity um, conversation where a lot of employers will be like, I, well, I want to hire more X, Y, Z, but I don't know where to look. And then like diversity coaches will be like, that's BS. Because yeah. <laughs> like, what do you think? Like people of different ethnicities just aren't findable, like, right. you know, at every level of executive. So I think it's a little bit of a laziness sometimes too, when companies, they may have good intention, but that's a good default response. Well, I don't know where to begin. And so I love that you're like, well, let me show you <laughs> yeah. so we could take that guesswork out. And actually with, with people with autism, there are some like legitimate challenges to finding them because many of them have been turned down so often for jobs that they're no longer actively looking. Yeah. So like you actually have to do some grassroots work, which for us means we're finding the people in the community who know and love particular individuals with autism. So those are like your job coaches, your, you know, community liaisons and local nonprofit organizations, your special education teachers, you know, they have some relationships, even if it's with students that like 
graduated 10 years ago. A lot of these teachers are so passionate, they still keep in touch with people. So there was maybe some like legitimate barriers, but yet you can still find them if you try to build a, 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 a really good recruiting pipeline. You know, it's, it's li- like, it is lazy to say like, okay, well, I'm just going to post these jobs on every job board, right? I'll use one of these softwares that I just going to post it to 10,000 job boards. And then I'm going to filter the resumes based on keywords on the resume. And then I'm going to do, you know, an interview and I'll pick my favorite candidate. Like that is, it's just not uh, contextually relevant for the vast majority of roles. And when we say that, like, we can't find people, if, if you're doing those things, it's, it's, that's probably, that's probably, yeah, that's true. yeah. I mean, I mean, that works too, but you have to do that in conjunction with having some real, commitment to finding those people right versus like you just said just well can't find it moving on exactly Which is, the software didn't keyword those words for me i couldn't find the you know the asian black guy who's <laughs> autistic with red hair yeah it wasn't on the resume <laughs> wasn't on the resume so sorry for you can't get a job yeah you, you have to really kind of want to do it and um so i think that's great and i, I do want to ask you too because i'm just curious so of all the types of businesses that you could have opened why a car wash yeah we looked at a bunch of dis- different businesses and what we were looking for at the time and, and honest, you know, frankly, looking back on it, not really understanding autism particularly well, hmm. but going through, going from what we were able to understand in the research, which was that, you know, lots of people with autism follow processes and structure really hmm. well. You know, we had Andrew and a, a small group of his friends that we, we knew intimately and said, okay, well, that makes sense. I, Andrew is a very, you know, structured and scheduled and, and routine person. So I can get on, get on board with that. So then we were like, okay, well, what community businesses? Cause we wanted something that was right away forward facing in the community mm-hmm. where our employees would interact with the local community and we'd right. be able to kind of communicate and educate the community about how capable people with autism are through a service. So that's essentially our theory of change is that in order for you know to change the perception of people with autism we need to invite community members into a business to show them how capable individuals with autism are so you know we we, we looked at these types of, of service organizations and we really liked car washes because one it is it's very routine oriented mm-hmm. it's essentially like a production line type system and it is also an organization an industry that chronically suffers from really high turnover. So you're looking at uh, 120 to 200% annual turnover on average for, you know, annually for, for, for car washes. So we said, okay, well, we have an advantage there by being able to theoretically, at, at least at that point, it was theoretical, be able to keep people longer uh, and have a more consistent workforce. And did that happen? Is that what you brought to fruition? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, our, our turnover rate right now is, you know, roughly five to eight times lower than, than the industry average. We're, we're operating about 20% annual turnover. So yes, that worked, but it also, at the end of the day, we, we looked at these industry, this business and said, you know, we really feel like Andrew could, could do a car wash. We also really think that, you know, at least it's an asset. So if it all crashes and burns, we can sell somebody the car wash back. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, right, and it's, right. Yeah, it's not all gone. And right. then we started trying to test it. We found some really great partners in the car wash in- industry. There's a group called Sunny's Enterprises, which is the largest manufacturer of car wash equipment in the country. And they happen to be based in, in South Florida. So, and they were really willing to help us early on. 
And the pieces from there kind of just kind of fell into place. We ran a, a prototype at an existing car wash in the summer of 2012, and it went really well. So we bought a, a car wash and kind of rest is history. Wow. This is important work and the world's a better place because of it. And as a family member of someone with autism, like I said, it's really, really, there's a comfort that I get knowing that there are people like you who are thinking about people. Thank you, Corey. And, and what they will have to endure as adults. So yes, you're very welcome. Thank you, Tom Derry, the COO of Rising Tide Car Wash and author of Power of Potential. And we are so happy you joined us today on Motivational Mondays. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Corey. Thank you for listening to Motivational Mondays presented by the National Society of Leadership and Success and available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm Corey Andrew Powell, and I'll see you again here next week.